Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting program of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practicing across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the sixth guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is contemporary artist Anna Blom. Anna Blom's work is a continuous narrative of her own immediate surroundings. It is a deconstruction of the fragile details, the warp and the weft, the physical and psychological components of our everyday landscape. Using a diaristic method, she studies the isolated, overlooked and less celebrated lapses of time. It's an act of watching and trying to understand coexistence. She begins with research, an archival process of collecting photographs, sketches, white noise and writing, which is ultimately poured into a painting. The multiple layers of the canvas are built up with stains of thin washes using raw pigment and situational debris to flow in. This creates textured, gritty matte surfaces, allowing the materials to explore each other, the colours indicating seasonality and the debris enhancing an awareness of place of production. We first worked together for the collection I curated in March earlier this year for Art and a Postcard, where I invited artist mothers to showcase postcard-sized works. I was introduced to Anna's work by our mutual friend and the wonderful artist Alexis Sol Gray. I was immediately drawn to the earthiness of her works, the layers which unwrap themselves patiently over time. You are so greatly rewarded for taking the time with her canvases and there is so much to examine and drink in. Anna Blom is a Swedish-born, London-based artist who holds an MA in painting from the Royal College of Art, graduating in 2022, and a BFA in painting from UAL Wimbledon. She has curated, led, and exhibited across Europe and the UK. Recent exhibitions include Apsara Gallery, International Women's Day Auction with Liminal Gallery, and Annihilation Osho Projects. She is a recipient of the 2022-2023 Travers Smith Art Programme, Morrison Forrester Art Programme and has been highly commended in the 2023 CSR Art Awards. Anna Blum, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Louise. Pleasure. So let's start right at the beginning. What brought you into art 
and making the works you do today? It's a it's an interesting one. I mean, my on my mum's side, all women were artists. But because of their life circumstances, they weren't allowed to work with art. This is going back 100 years ago where, you know, you fell pregnant too early and you had to be married in, etc. And when I was younger, my mum pushed me, really wanted me to go into art school. But I felt at the time I couldn't afford it. I also didn't feel like I had the confidence. You know, I think a lot of us artists feel like, you know, you need to have that you make a lot of decisions, so you have to be quite confident and have a good gut feeling about what you want to do. So I waited, and I waited until a lot of these women who were artists actually passed, and that's where I felt kind of more determined to do it for them and for myself. But I'm, I'm, I feel really happy that I came into it later in life because I can draw from that sort of richer life experience you have when you're a bit older. I think you also take the course much more seriously. I remember when I was at university and I studied fine art and I went straight from college into university and to an extent I took it seriously, but I was mostly there for the socialising. But the mature students, I was friends with a lot of mature students and they took it so seriously and they really kind of pushed me to stop messing around and to to start actually working and I think that that's what you bring to that course is you're very acutely aware of the debt that you're putting yourself into and and that you do have to work for it yeah no 100% and and uh, you know in within while I'm doing the BA and the master's I had three or still have three small children and you know you live a extremely time poor life but I think that's an advantage in a lot of ways because then you focus almost more <laughs> and you said that the women that were in your family they weren't able to be artists why weren't they able to is it because of like family restrictions yeah no it's just that for example my grandma who uh, worked actually quite closely with Hilda or Klimt wow I know. And she, they together created the My Blomma, which is quite well known in Sweden. And she did this beautifully tapestries and she always worked on them. And unfortunately, she fell pregnant out of marriage already when she was 15. And at that time, that was really frowned upon. So she was basically removed from society during the whole time of pregnancy. And then the child was given away. And then she was basically forced into a marriage. Uh, I mean, it was a happy marriage to a certain extent, but it was not on her terms, obviously. So she carried on doing her tapestry, but always dreamt about going to Const uh, Academy in Sweden. And then my mum, similarly, she was she always painted. She always did her beautiful watercolours and so did her sisters. But she didn't have the confidence of, I can do this, I can take up this space. And I think that was very much an era that has been like not taking that space not allowing yourself to be seen was very much part of that time so I think that is changing but still have a lot to do a lot of work to do in this era but you know and that was the reasons and what gave you the confidence to go for it and pursue it it was really when a lot of these women that I've admired in my family passed away uh, through various diseases and too early, I got to a point in my life, I was like, am I 
am I going to go for what I really feel passionate about or am I going to go the safe route? And luckily I have a partner who really fully supported me in the decision because we knew that that would affect our, our way of living if I would go down this route. And yeah, I, th I think it's just that sort of immediate loss of people around you. You go, actually, I want to do this for them. <laughs> but I need to do it for myself as well. I think you can't live your life wondering what if, can you? I mean, to a certain extent, like you say, you've got to have supportive people around you. And especially that you've got a supportive partner. It's very grown up that you had that conversation. It's a dose of reality, isn't it? Rather than the kind of romantic vision. You have to think about the reality of it, that it's uncertain. I think a lot of people have that romanticized picture of it, but it's I never worked so many hours in my life and I come from a background of fashion and advertising and we work long hours there, you know. So it's a very lonely world as well. You know, you work on your own, you're spending all these hours on your own as well. So <laughs> it's a very special kind of way of living. And how have you got on since you, cause you graduated last year? You said that it's very lonely experience. I know that you've got studios. Do you know a lot of the other artists in the studios? Are you able to have that, not a crit, but, you know, the kind of more informal chats, problem solving? Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I So I have two studio spaces or actually three studio spaces. I work <gasps> on one. I know. Oh. <laughs> I, I know. I'm so lucky. <laughs> um, so one back home in Sweden, where I'm from, and uh, one at home in London, which uh, helps me to work when the children are on holidays, etc. It gives me freedom there. And then just recently, I acquired a studio space with Bomb Factory in Chelsea, and I have loads of my uh, peers there. And we have brilliant conversations, and I feel really fortunate to be near them, because that means that I can can have these conversations that you long for and you need the input. One of the reasons for me to do this is to sit next to my contemporaries and look at the site guys together. You know, it's, it's it creates really interesting conversations. Yeah, I think it's so important. There's like an element of both that's just so important to an artist's practice, isn't it? Having that isolation, having that time alone where you can really be in the moment, but then also talking to people as well. And it's so hard for people to find their community, especially, I think, in London. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, since I graduated from RCA a year ago now, that's kind of what I have been focused on is to work out the art landscape and work out looking at my own values and then working out which people I want to have conversations with and work with based on those values and slowly creating this community that is supportive and generous. I think that's why a lot of people tend to do like extra little courses. It's not necessarily for their practice. It's to find those people, you know, like there's the TERPS course. and TERPS is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I've heard amazing things, but I think that's like a real decider for a lot of people that I've spoken to because they haven't found that little pocket of humanity in the art world yeah it's a very special industry I mean it's I think you can find that in any industry that sort of the non-human elements of people but I think especially in the art industry because it's so unregulated you probably find it even more 
And how do you feel about the art world being unregulated? Just while we're on this subject, uh-huh. <laughs> that's quite oh, an interesting one. It, it is. I mean, it, I'm in a WhatsApp group where there's a lot of discussion about this right now because there's a couple of galleries that's closed down in London, and one of them were not treating their artists that great. And I think it's a it's a real shame that people don't take on the responsibility of caring for each other like you know you would care for anybody near you and and ultimately be professional with both money and relationships and I understand that you know it's whoever sits on money sits on power and if you don't have that power if you hang people out and actually call them out then you might jeopardize your own network and the network is your lifeline in a lot of Way, so it's it's a real tricky one it is I kind of love the fact that the art world is unregulated on a certain level because I think it seems quite interesting you know it feels like anyone either me can set up a gallery and not have to tick every box and have all these stipulations on on what I'm doing but then at the same time then you see stories like that or what happened recently at the British Museum which is just farcical I can't believe that that was able to happen with someone stealing a lot of very precious items and so you just see things like that or you hear about galleries not treating their artists right not paying them their works going missing and that just that breaks my heart into a million pieces because they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the artists and that should be the first person they're paying not the rent not the bills not anything else it should be the artists that they're paying and making sure that no matter what happens they get their money that they deserved I guess it's pros and cons with everything you know it's it's just the way you go about it So in your intro, I mentioned the situational debris, which is left on your canvases, which I just love that term. Someone said to me at the private view of our show that that's what they're going to start calling the crumbs on their kitchen worktop. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It really tickled me. (laughs) So can you explain this in a bit more detail and tell me how important it is to your practice and how it came to be? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it started really during COVID when uh, I didn't have a studio and we were forced out of our places and I started to work in the garden here in London and it just like stuff came coming into my paintings and it got to a point where I was like, I can't be fighting this anymore. And then, then my next thinking was, you know, I'm doing these paintings on the floor I usually start unstretched so laid right on the floor and it becomes this kind of robbing of the ground I'm working from and I just thought to myself that makes completely sense that whatever is near the painting comes into the painting as well and it kind of it becomes an archival process and it shows where I've been and the time it was from and I thought just go with the process let it do its thing so it started really then and it was not until later I I was for example when I worked in Sweden it becomes so obvious because working on these pine trees and the pine needles were falling into the, the painting I could not get rid of that and it just got stuck in the paint and yeah it's um it's something that I really enjoy now as a part of it and it's like an archival process almost and it it shows time and place do you start all of your works on the floor and outside Mm, yeah no matter what time of the year it is 
Yeah, I think it stems from this. I usually call it like an extreme planner. <laughs> it doesn't matter what size the canvases are. I drag them out and I, I play with them outside. And the reason for doing that is that A, I'm really interested of trying to capture the mood and the colours and the light of that moment. And it's also that thing of allowing the... Uh, for me to work under the open sky makes me feel like I can do anything. It is no limit to how ambitious I can become. So that's real fun as well. So that's where I start and on the floor. And then a few layers in, I feel like I found the hues. I bring them inside. And then that's usually when I start to stretch, stretch the painting and I can just sit with the work. You told me at the opening, which I didn't realise, you take out your contact lenses. Yay. <laughs> Was it the initial layers? <laughs> yeah, in the initial layers, I basically, I'm uh, very nearsighted. So everything is very uh, foggy on a far distance. And I think sometimes we are too obsessed with details. And as a painter and an artist, you make a lot of decisions on daily basis anyway, and sometimes on hourly basis. So to take out the contact lenses allows me to just focus on the light and the colours near me at that moment. And then I'm intuitively working with that. I love that. I really do. I mean, it makes so much sense. I think <laughs> I'm nearsighted as well, but you always just think of it as such a burden, but you're turning that into a superpower and you're just <laughs> using that to your absolute advantage. <laughs> and that's such a great idea because you really do. You see the light, you see the shadows and you're taking the colours that you're seeing at that time in the season and using those colours in your palette for your works, aren't you? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, you can really tell by my paintings from which season I'm in or when it's been done and also which country. I mean, the light is quite different when I do them in Sweden. The light is slightly different than in the London paintings, for example. The other thing when we're talking about your process, which I found really fascinating because I kind of assumed, I don't know what I assumed, but I didn't realise quite how layered, how very thin layers your works are as well. Yeah, the, the bigger paintings probably have something around 12 to 15 thin layers. And um, that comes from, A, just playing with the different layers outside to capture the colours and the light. But then when I bring them in to stretch them, I looking at the paintings, like I call it cloud watching, trying to, I'm writing to the work in order to work it out and then I'm looking at this cloud watching to try to work it out and finding these sort of subtle figures within the painting and for me that's almost like it's a representation of how layered our own everyday is you know you a lot of people you see it as straightforward and this is that and you sad and that's that but actually you know when you're standing there in the room and you're just being sad you can see something that makes you slightly hopeful and that runs through your body so these all these ephemeral moments create these thin layers and that's it's important for me that they are thinner at the times when they're supposed to be thin and then other times when maybe the the emotions feel thicker and it's really sticky, I can allow myself to play with that stickiness as well. I mean, I've just recently done some paintings where the pigment is really thickly laid on because it was a sticky situation. <laughs> so it's, it's a play with the material. 
and allowing the material to pick up on the conceptual thinking. You recently arrived back in the UK after going feral in your native Sweden. <laughs> I say that with prior knowledge of how you go about life when working in Sweden. You visit there every summer and use the expansive and seemingly quite wild landscape to create your works outdoors in all weathers. Can you tell me about this extreme location change from your usual London life and how it affects your work? Yeah, this is a cabin that we we have out in the Swedish archipelago. And it's a very low maintenance living. It's, we do most things outside. You know, it's like eating, washing, socialising outside. So we go there for 46 weeks uh, every summer. And it's the opposite of London. I don't even have a dishwasher or washing machine out there. Wow. And I know. <laughs> so it really, but it, it what it allows you to do, it makes the, everything you do in your everyday, you make it the opposite in a funny way, except from the standard of, you know, you need to eat and you need to sleep, right? Uh, and uh, so it really sets me in a really beautiful way. And I think, you know, I love the intensity of cities and big cities but I'm also born and raised in the mountains of Sweden so for me this is part of who I am and what I long for is that sort of deep silence and and maybe to rewild <laughs> I guess but it's also every time I go out there that this reset allow me to relook colors and light as well so it's being totally immersed in nature I, I think it, it it changes something several in your brain and so you take all your canvases out there and all your materials yeah I brought 20 meters canvas with me this time <laughs> which is a lot which is a lot but this year was very different from last year it was so rainy it poured down most of the time we was there and that at first maybe a little bit irritated because I couldn't work with it and it was a storm that came in that flooded everything in a lot of parts of Sweden and that storm affected all of us because we live so close to the nature you could really feel like you felt quite unsettled but you know after a while it's like I just have to go with the process trust the process <laughs> and allow the rain to do what it needed to do and I built up grounds and brought them back and set them up in my studio in a bomb factory uh, mid last week when I got back. And yeah, it could be really exciting to work on that over the winter. <laughs> How amazing. So you did the first few layers in Sweden. Yeah. And then you're going to work on them now that you're back in London. Yeah, exactly. And you managed to do it in the rain, <laughs> not just wash it all off. It did wash off to a certain extent and then I added and then it allowed it to dry and once it dried it stayed. So it was that sort of, yeah, just working with the weather. <laughs> and how did you all get on? Because uh, you said that you do everything outside. So in that weather, did you all just have to hunker down inside? Well, the family did, but I didn't. So I was there out in wellies and my raincoat. <laughs> Some people find it a bit extreme, but I, I start very early in the morning to get the amount of hours I want to get into my practice. Because like the life of, of a family requires, you have lots of responsibilities. So I usually start around 5.30 in the morning. And then by 3, I feel like hey, I've done a full day now and, and I can go on and, and do the chores of, of the family as well. 
I think that's really interesting. I think you've got to find out what works for you, haven't you? In every family, you've got to try and find those little pockets, those moments where you can actually work and focus and have that dedicated time. Yeah, I think it's it's so important. I, mean, I think it's important for all of us to have like a, a solid working time and not jump between too many things. I mean, I know it's a, it's a luxury, but especially when you paint, when you find in the flow of painting, I need to be able to focus. And I'm, I'm lucky that I'm a morning person. <laughs> Very lucky. I know friends who are parents and they work through the night. I, I couldn't do it because after nine o'clock, I, I basically don't function. <laughs> I just don't make sense. <laughs> And the nighttime has something special as well, you know. It's a it's a very democratic time. It's everybody's time, and it's, it's something really it's something really beautiful about it. But I guess I catch the last bit of that in the morning. <laughs> exactly that, yeah. Like the kids were all in bed and kind of had to have their house to yourself. It's quiet. It's tranquil. The first thing in the morning, I think, late at night, it's that same energy. But you just at last thing at night, you know that you've got your bed to look forward to. so for this exhibition you wrote beautiful passages to explain your thought processes to me is writing an important part of your practice and how does it help you to create your visual works I do I call my work um that I have a diaristic mythology and I think it stems from I always been writing diaries ever since I was little and that diary writing this is just carried on but now I'm combining it with writing and painting so it's like a recording of happenings what I'm doing in effect I read a lot and I think when you read a lot a lot of ideas pop up and you want to get it out of your system so I start with the writing and then that's transferred to the painting and it's it's a way for me the writing is a way for me to to work out the paintings and also it's a time for me I usually do most of my writing when I'm halfway through a painting so I've captured the sort of initial hues and light and I'm doing my cloud watching and I'm writing to the work and that's where I uh, do a lot of my writing and working out the titles and where I want to go with the work and what's important what's happening in my own life and people near me right now and that becomes my diary. It's writing that I don't necessarily share with people in a sense because it's extremely personal. Um, and I have had people, quite a few now, that kind of want me to publish it. But I'm not ready for that yet. And I don't know whether it's uh, fair for my collaborators either. <laughs> so it's um, we'll see. But yeah, it's something I really enjoy doing. It's a quieter way of thinking as well. I'm, I'm quite energetic person. So the writing and the painting slows me down and makes me think things through properly. I love that you say that you're writing to the painting. You're not saying that you're writing about the painting. Yeah, absolutely. I know it, it's very much like that. It's almost like I'm talking to the painting. And yeah, it, it's a conversation. You know, they become people I live with at the time in the studio. From your writings, do you take the titles? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly that. And and I think, you know, it, it probably started off with trying to working out sometimes the idea. And for some people who work out the title right at the beginning, so they know what they focus about. And, and then some people go like, 
done the work and then they work out the title but for me it's in that in between stage and once I'm done with the painting I go back to the writing and maybe even write further but that's where yeah, the title is usually based on that it makes me see the title it is really a, a diaristic way of working. It's just recording. It's not only my own events, but it's like I'm almost like a fly on the wall watching what other people do. And like I'm going to the bus station and waiting and I'm seeing people next to me having conversations. And, you know, you're doing that sort of people watching and people listening into what people are talking about and what's going on in their lives. And this is one of the reasons why I absolutely adore living in London. It's like it's it's so rich on research. It's like everybody around me, I get fed on and I get inspired by. And I take the buses and tubes, but I cycle a lot as well. And that makes me feel even closer to the to the city. How does it make you feel closer? I it's sometimes when you're in a in a bus or a car you almost have like a shield around you but when you're cycling you don't have that you are exposed to everything right and right it gets right into your face sometimes it can be quite terrifying uh, most of the times it's a pretty good thing because people are great I mean a lot of people complain about humans but I am really hopeful that I do love humans and I believe in them <laughs> So you're a bit like a, not a sponge, but you're kind of listening and you're taking on these conversations that you're accumulating and then putting into your works. Yeah, I'm suffering from this sort of trait called HSP, which is highly sensitive person. And it's a condition when you are, you easily absorb your environments. And sometimes it can be quite overwhelming. But uh, I use it to my advantage where I can listen in to people and listen into the environment and the spaces I live in. And how do you cope with that living in the city? I mean, that must be, you say that you love the city, but that must be like really overstimulating. It can be. I think that's my studio is my safe zone. So that's why I go and then I don't mind so much that I am all by myself because that's where I recharge. So being an artist, a lot of the time you go to, well, some people do, to openings and you're very social and you're this extrovert person that people want to see of you because you're there to explain your art and they want they want snippets of you. <laughs> and then I can be that extrovert, but I then go into my studio and that's my introvert time. So if you see me out and about and seeing the extrovert Anna, you would not even recognize the introvert Anna. <laughs> but I think we all have, <laughs> I think we all have these dualities, don't we? For sure. Especially at openings and things, you've got to put on a performance. It's like a persona that you adopt, yeah, isn't it? It's very performative, yeah. Some people don't, and I respect that completely as well. But for me, I get excited to be amongst other people. I really get excited to just hang out with people and talk to people and get their point of view. And I love, for example, to invigilate my own shows and not necessarily tell people that I'm the artist behind the paintings. So then I get a chance to speak to the audience and get their viewpoint before they know I'm the artist. Because as soon as they know I'm the artist, they say things they think I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you get some more honest feedback don't you 100 percent. yeah very smart <laughs> <laughs> so there's a real primitiveness to the, your way of working it's physical unpredictable you yourself are totally immersed in it clambering over canvases hanging them out on your washing line plunging them into the Thames River 
I don't think this preparation comes across in your often delicate and fragile canvases. How do you bring these two opposing sides together? See, when I saw that question, I was, I was, I was so intrigued because it's, it was just really interesting for me. I never even considered these opposites to, to be opposites. <laughs> it's like for me, it was almost like this is the way they live together. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm really glad you pointed out because it made me think like, how is this coming about? And I think it comes from, it stems from when I bring these canvases out into real life because I want to absorb the light and the mood and, and the colors. And they become these sort of quite rough robbings of the ground where I've been exploring. And then when I bring them in, I stretch them and they become a lot more detailed. And at first, I'm, maybe they do look delicate, but when you study it and then you adjust your position gradually, more layers emerges. And even though the layers are thin and delicate, they all sit on their own meaning. So I guess it's like a, a very subtle and tranquil understanding and study. In a lot of the times, I wonder also when you meet a person and if if you know their story, you can see in the body language and in their eyes and the way they talk, what trauma they've gone through. But you need to know the story a bit in order to see those layers. So I guess that's maybe how I see it. And you said that you were thinking about plunging your works into Thames. Yeah, I haven't done it yet. I plunged it uh, other places, but I haven't plunged it in the Thames yet. Oof. <laughs> And how did it go? Did you put them into a river? Because I'm so intrigued by this. Yeah, no, it plunged it into the ocean near where I live. And I also did an experiment, which I was, I was really excited about when I came back. Like last year, I left the painting outside in the Swedish studio. I left it outside in a forest and for a whole year. And just it got back this summer and see how it's been affected and weathered by the weather. And it, A, I realized that the canvas is really resilient. The bleaching of the sun and the snow have really done a beautiful leathered surface on the canvas. So I was talking to my partner, who I discuss a lot of my work with. I was saying, maybe, you know, we need to bury some of the paintings because then you get like do you know what I mean it's like you bury into the ground and let it do its work and then you bring it up again after a year and that's another way of almost adding this sort of archival process into the painting this is just initial thoughts and it's probably too early to talk about <laughs> I think it's really interesting I love that idea your actual works are kind of very of the earth they feel very earthy like it feels like you're looking up at the trees whether you're looking down to the soil there's like this kind of interesting perspective on nature but then that you're actually immersing it into nature in this very unpredictable way you don't know what's going to happen to it something could chew through it it's totally removing your control you know what you were saying earlier about artists looking at the detail too much and getting too absorbed in the details and then you're just totally removing yourself from any control whatsoever and just letting mother nature do its thing <laughs> yeah no it's a fun process and I think the initial starts of the canvases are always quite intuitive and uh, 
expressive in that sense. And then, you know, the later stage becomes a more showing the details and bringing out the sort of more lines, what some people call figurative, but I don't, I don't know whether it is figurative, depends on how you look at it. And that's the line I'm always meandering between, you know, because like a lot of the things I'm looking at and I feel like in my own, own environment, it is extremely abstract. I don't know if it's the time we live in, that if it makes it feel even more abstract because it's quite chaotic and we, we're living so much online and nothing is no stop and no end to things. Uh, well, that leads me on to another question very nicely. So I came to visit your London studio and we had such a wonderful conversation about the lack of terminology for contemporary artists and works and specifically figurative versus abstract. And from these two options, what would you say you are and why? And if neither, then do you have a word for your way of working? <laughs> I haven't find the word that I personally like for for I, I call it a hashtag it semi semi abstract but I think you know that's tapping into existing use of words isn't it and I guess that's what they know and therefore they understand it better but I think you know it is dated words we have moved on so much since those words were created to explain artwork so but if I would find a better word, I, I guess it's a, a study of stickiness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah, but you know, you study something and you work through it with your memory and intuition and imagination. So it's almost become cerebral. You know, it's part of your brain. So that's that's the the stickiness of the air that surrounds you, right? <laughs> I don't know. Because you start very abstract, like you say, they're very intuitive, expressive, and then and then you take them into your studio, and then that's when your hand is directly applied. So then you're bringing out certain moments to tell a story, to make a narrative, to express an emotion. So often I'll I'll look at your canvases and be like totally abstract, and you're like, oh yes, okay, very abstract, and then you're like, oh, hold on a second, is that is that a face? Is, that hand is uh you're just so rewarded for slow looking with your canvases because if you take the time then they just they just very subtly come out but the beauty of it is that your hand is not Thank you. you're very very delicate and I think that's what I meant when I asked the previous question is that you know your hand is just so delicate and sympathetic to the marks that are already there so you don't notice it you're not like oh you know there's obviously a figure there because it just feels like you're easing it out. You're not applying it. Yeah, that's a lot of the situation I'm trying to explain or depict or understand are ephemeral. And anything that is ephemeral can't can't have a harsh line to it. But then I have also done paintings where it's like it was about a fight and the the idea of how that fight could really it was lingering in the air and it was so strong and I needed to represent that heaviness so therefore it was a real heavy mark with heavy pigment so I think it's finding what you're trying to explain and using those materials in in the right way but a lot of the I'm I'm, I'm depicting situations that are 
everyday emotions that maybe not shouted about or celebrated and these unseen overlooked emotions usually are ephemeral they're not shouting <laughs> they're not instagrammable <laughs> that's how they they are weave us they are there every day and they need to be celebrated in their own way you use a lot of raw pigments in your works as well do you make your own mm, i don't yeah uh, I've tried to create some sort of warm orange colours by allowing cast iron to rust. And I was when I was in Sweden, we had this cast iron kettle that's just been standing outside all winter. And I just kind of brushed off the rust that came from that and used in a painting. I thought it was going to be stronger than it actually was but you could still see elements of it. And then and a pigment that was really strong that I didn't expect to be strong is blueberries. I just crushed them up. Yeah, and I was just painting and I said, I had a few blueberries near me and I crushed them up and I used them and they gave the deepest blue purple color, gorgeous. So it made me think, I, was, I bumped into a woman called Lucy from uh, London Pigment and we had a long conversation about could you actually do pigments out of, you know, brick, carpet, you know, you know, these objects and elements are near your environment. And she's like, yes, of course you can. And I was like, so I'm in talks with her right now to actually learn how to do pigments. I mean, it's something that will be really fun to extend the conceptual thinking with. But we, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Watch the space. <laughs> That's so exciting. And the pigments that you would make, are they archival? Would she be able to help with that side of things? Because it'd be an interesting thing to know. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, I will see what, what, what she says. A question that someone asked, which I think would be interesting to talk about now. Someone asked at the private view how you fix the raw pigments, because obviously they're like a loose powder. Yeah, it's um, so I was again, you know, having this brilliant community in London, they help you out. I mean, John from AP Fitzpatrick basically gave me a, a whole day of a workshop for free and his in his shop in, in East London. And and he so he showed me how, how to preserve the, the pigments and, 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 and the debris that comes into the painting. So it's a sealer. So every time I get what we call the situation of debris coming into the painting or and when I'm using raw pigment, I seal it and then I seal it again. And it becomes one of the reasons why all these layers are always built up as well, because I seal in between. Because I don't know next time I'll, I will be working on that painting. Could, I will usually work on like five to six paintings at the same time. And that allows me to preserve it and then come back and look at it. It's a very long process, isn't it? A lot of patience, actually. Yeah, it, it is. And I think, you know, six years ago, I did a, I did mostly drawings together with installation work. And when I started my master at the Royal College, I was really there to, to invest in the paint. And uh, for me, painting requires a slowness and I think that really suits me well for my personality but also suits well for the time because everything is a fastness to it and that can be problematic can we make things happen very quickly so sometimes that's a good thing but I um, yeah I can I can see how people are 
anxious in a different way that maybe didn't exist 20 30 years ago mm, why do you think that is uh, we have created a it probably has a lot of factor to do with it but we have created a world that is moving faster than than our brains can handle i mean our brains are have not changed that much over the thousands and thousands of years but the the world we live in it's a lot faster and we are responsible for that technology but i don't think necessarily we benefit from it and is that why you think you make the paintings that you make to try and slow people down yeah, I mean, the, the actual process of paint slows me down. I think then the work I do becomes like a, a painted philosophy of trying to work out how we sit with each other and how we sit in the spaces we live in. I think I always have had a hard time to understand why we do the things we do in the way we do. And painting for me has become this kind of psychological research of why we do things the way we do but not actually finding an answer more creating really interesting questions because I think that's that's the beauty for me with with art is like it is a conversation starter and a really interesting way of study the way we live but not necessarily have to land with an answer like you know if you studies in science you are required to have a yes or no answer but in art it's a reflection that is the absolute beauty of it I think that is so true I've come to realize recently that a lot of people are looking for answers when sometimes it's better just to start with questions you know you can't really answer everything there can't be an answer for everything sometimes you know that is the kind of beauty of life isn't it that there isn't an answer but you can ask more questions yeah 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. i mean it's something i haven't learned until late i mean i i think i was born and raised in an environment where you were supposed to have answers you were supposed to know everything and you're like no actually no <laughs> and uh, a good question is worth so much more than a solid answer uh, because this stops the thinking so what do you enjoy the most about your practice when hmm. i'm absolutely knee deep in paint <laughs> fully immersed in it that's why I'm absolutely happiest and uh, I I paint in quietness no sound on whatsoever not even music I remove my phone so it's a real free space for me and then I also enjoy this studying, the reading to work out things um, I mean I, I've always been interested in psychology ever ever since I got my first library card when I was eight, the first section I went to was this sort of working out human psychology. And it's like, how would I even know about that when I was eight? I have no idea. And that that has really carried on. And I to be able to do this and do that research and work with it, it's um, a real joy and pleasure. It becomes like, you know, I mentioned before, like it was painted, painted philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> and so what do you find the most frustrating about your practice? I guess, I mean, we have touched upon it already, the fastness and to be, especially within industry, is a real hunger for the latest, the drive for the latest work and the quick turnarounds and the producing a lot. And I think that good work requires time and research and yeah, it feels like we're losing a bit sight of that. And, you know, the 
for me, art is about the, it's an evidence of the, the time we live in and a good conversation starter. And uh, But this fastness just sometimes create quite undercooked work. And I feel like I've seen it a bit too much. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, in a funny way, this recession will give us, uh, it's a terrible thing that's happening to us. And, and a lot of us struggling with paying the bills, etc. But someone spoke to a gallerist that it's a little bit older. And uh, he was just saying, you know, I've gone through a lot of recessions through my time. And, and he creates a community building. And uh, it makes people reflect on themselves and what kind of work they want to do. And that's what I'm hoping that this fastness, maybe this recession will bring highlight that and balance us out a bit more. Yeah, it's time for deep, deep painting and deep thinking time, maybe with our pressure. Yeah, it's funny because I spoke to someone else earlier today and they said that that's exactly what they've been doing. They've taken this time to just really look at their practice why am I doing it just question everything and I think that that's just such a good use of time rather than panicking and about things that haven't even happened yet it's a good time to like sit down and reassess and to be like what am I doing where am I going what's next can I explore this medium more can I know this medium inside out no, hundred percent. I think it's a, it's it's a beautiful thing, and then when we, when things are picking up, and if they're picking up, you know, then, then you probably feel stronger for it, you know, as an artist or as you know, as a creative person, as a writer. Is there anything that you would like to say about your current two-person exhibition, The Pull of the Tides, at Liminal Gallery? Well, what a wonderful thing this was. I mean, it's it's brilliant to a work with your vision of it which I really enjoyed from the get-go, but also work with Emma, who, as I met Emma, realised that we have very similar way of viewing things, but expresses a different take. And for me, this idea of water tides, and they, they have this sort of effect and effect on us, you know, they have the literal effect of having the gravity and the magnetic pull, but... It also metaphorical have these tides that are forming us as, as humans. And I took this opportunity to treat the canvases like time machines <laughs> and uh, to contemplate over birth and aging and the what, what happens to us with body fluids and hormones. And, and the quote that rang true to me at the time was that uh, time and tide wait for no man and the idea that you know water erodes and creates a pattern of aging but it also creates a sort of portrays eternity infinity and the passing of time and this for me then made me think almost like in a spiritual way that you know it shows us water shows us that we're all equal and you know eventually we will go the same road that we'll we'll die we all are born and we will die and as a very humble way of looking at existence I mean it doesn't matter how much money you have or how how your your privilege will all have the basics need of, of humans and um, for me that sometimes helps to take down barriers barriers that I think we all have for various reasons depending on your culture background or your your gender or situation conditions you have 
so for me that was a it was, it was a real beautiful thing of just pausing everything and look at time and how water affects us both mentally and physically and it was also fun to do it with Emma <laughs> and then on top of that we got on like house on fire that that was just the added bonus <laughs> I knew you were going to I knew it obviously I'd worked with you and then at Art and a Postcard International Women's Day the opening there were uh, I think there were six curators in total and I saw that someone else had included Emma Richardson who's the second artist in the exhibition um I saw that someone else had included one of her postcards I'd never seen her work before and I just I could not stop thinking about the two of your works together and months went by and I was still thinking I was just like oh I should just make this happen I could just I don't even I don't even know Emma I know you I think that you'll be up for it don't know Emma but I'm just gonna tell her (laughs) this is my idea And you both went along with it, and it's just such a beautiful show. I'm really, I really love it. It was a really beautiful thing to hang, having these two absolute massive. I mean, you made a massive canvas to go in my tiny little gallery, and I'll forever <laughs> love you for it. <laughs> but then also, you made a really, really small work, which I think, apart from the postcards, it's the smallest work I've seen of yours. And yeah, I just love that the same energy rings true for the big and the small one. And that is just such a hard thing to get as an artist to be able to work on that big scale because you've got that room to be expressive and to fling things around. But to get that same energy on a really tiny canvas is just, oh, delicious. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love doing it. I mean, it's interesting because the big painting allowed me to almost do a macro of the situation and then the smaller one became a micro of it so it's like you put it that emotion that happened in the big painting on the microscope and that's that's what the small painting became and then you've also got a lovely medium painting as well yeah three gorgeous works and I hope that everyone comes down to see it oh yes I mean we have a whole month and it looks like it's going to be glorious weather as well, the all of September. So, you know, days by the sea. Exactly that. I mean, <laughs> the weather is really on our side. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's all that rain in Sweden. Got it all out of the way. Oh, God. But I heard you had it in London as well, so. <laughs> we, had, we did have a lot of rain. It was... not, not the storm, but the, the, the We did have rain. a storm here. So... I don't know about London, but we had, in Margate, we had a couple of storms. Yeah. <laughs> It's just wild weather. It felt autumnal. I was wearing my cardigans again, but I think it was just everywhere. It was just a bit of a washout, wasn't it? But hopefully we've got Salama now. Yeah, for a few months. Or for a few weeks, sorry. For a few weeks. It'd be nice if it was for a few months. Let's hope so. Yeah. No, I'm not sure. I mean, I really love the seasons. (laughs) It's like the summer is gorgeous, but I also love when the autumn is coming rolling in and you have to put on the layers and curl up and having that almost like you hibernate inside and crawl up with your book and it almost gives you a pause from the hectic summer because the summer is so so it's a lot of expectations from the summer as well you know you're supposed to to socialize and do all these things and you know the, the this autumn and the winter allows you to sort of go inside yourself <laughs> and uh yeah I really enjoy that but I love the seasons I could I could I think I've probably struggled to live in a place that did not have any seasons at all 
Yeah, and especially, I mean, Sweden, you have quite extreme seasons, don't you? You have like your real rainy season. Yeah. Summers are beautiful. And then the winters are super cold, snow. Super cold. Yeah. I mean, where I grew up, it was in January, it could be like minus 30, 40. Oh my God. I know. No. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the, well, it happens less so now. Uh, now, but, but I, I don't know whether that is the, environment issues that we're dealing with or if it's just uh, a phase that we're going through but it's left definitely less really cold winters but when I was little it was we could have like weeks of minus 40 mm, it's beautiful you just have to wear all of your thermals yeah it, it's it doesn't feel as bad because it's a really dry dry sort of coldness but you have to be careful with frostbite and it goes quickly oh really Especially on little tiny babies. Wow, my God, that's quite scary. Yeah, it is actually. I went to Finland in February for my friend's wedding a few years ago. And I think it was like minus 18 or something. And But it didn't feel it because it was that dry, what you're talking about. And we went to, there's snow everywhere. We just arrived and I went to Mm. make a snowball to throw it at my husband. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of course I, it wouldn't stay together because the snow was so dry that you can actually like push it together never seen that before it's mm. amazing yeah that's perfect for if you ski that we love that kind of snow but uh you get the wettest snow where i grew up coming sort of april then you have the wet oh, snow wow. and and uh, but like it's it's, sometimes the winter can feel really long as well I start already end of October beginning of November then the last all the way to end of April (laughs) so (gasps) it's a long slow and what about the light do you have like just a few hours of sunlight a day yeah I mean around end of December you really just have like 40 minutes of daylight no 40 minutes And then on the opposite, like in end of June, you you have 23 hours of daylight. So you can go out at two o'clock in the morning and it feels like daytime, <laughs> which is crazy. It is it is something quite spectacular to see. But it's interesting. It's I never you have lots of snow in the winter, so that reflects a lot of light. So it doesn't you you would think, oh God, it must be so dark all the time, but actually the snow reflects a lot of light. So it doesn't feel as miserable as it sounds, <laughs> I guess. And then you have snow to throw yourself into if you get too miserable. Yeah. Yeah, that too, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's enough weather chat, I think. So that's all my questions. So Anna Blom, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Louise. Loved it. (laughs) The Pull of the Tides, a two-person exhibition by Anna Blom and Emma Richardson, continues until the 30th of September at Liminal Gallery, 34 Fort Hill in Margate. We have new opening times and are now open Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays, 11 until 4pm. And outside of these times, by appointment. More information can be found on our website, www.liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Emma Richardson, the second artist in the Pull of the Tides, our current exhibition. Bye for now.